Welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Bershon. I teach film and English literature at McEwen University, and the following was a lecture that I gave to my students in the winter of 2021 in a course that was looking at 100 years of horror. We've arrived at the 1990s, a decade that I would have said didn't have really great horror, but we arrive at a classic film that not only teaches us the rules of horror, but then shows us how to break them. Wes Craven's Scream. So when I was designing this course, I wanted to go decade by decade. And my research kept bringing me to the conclusion that I might just skip the 90s. I might just skip the 90s. And here's why. The movie from the 1990s that shows up on most of the greatest horror films of all time lists uh, was the fifth highest grossing film of that year and one of the only films at the time, there was a very small handful, to have won the top four Oscar categories of Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, um, The Silence of the Lambs, and starring Jodie Foster right, as uh, Clarice Starling. And it was really Clarice Starling uh, that was my, my problematic point. She was coded as far too capable. And my understanding of horror films is largely that you need to have vulnerable victims, or at least victims that come across as highly vulnerable uh, at the outset, even if later on they, they prove to be more uh, capable. Um, but the success of Silence of the Lambs led to one of the defining features of horror in the 1990s, hand-in-hand uh, hand with a fascination with Jeffrey Dahmer and Fred West. Uh, this was really the decade of the serial killer in a number of films that tried to bank off the success of Silence of the Lambs. And then meanwhile... You know, because what we have here is a sort of legitimation of horror in prestige and quality. Francis Ford Coppola made his version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, and that set off a line of, of films that would try to emulate uh, Coppola's success. And, uh, you know, whether or not we find that particular film terribly successful, what really identifies these, uh, what Thomas Austin calls costume horror um, films of the 1990s, Bram Stoker's Dracula, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which happened to be, uh, that was directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh, and then Mary Riley, which was a take on Jekyll and Hyde with Julia Roberts and John Malkovich. Um, as well as uh, the, the, those were all sort of great literary adaptations in a sense, going way back to very early horror antecedents, but uh, something more recent, but still a costume horror. Uh, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt in Interview with the Vampire, Neil Jordan movie, uh, these were all lavish productions, great costuming, great uh, production design, a very strong sense in every case of historical mise-en-scene, um, but they were what Mark Yankovic calls horror for people who don't like horror. Horror for people who don't like horror. You know, so this was the gentrification of horror uh, in the uh, 
in the 1990s. He had had this legitimation through the prestige and quality of Silence of the Lambs and then these these other films. But for traditional horror fans used to, you know, the indie films of the 1970s being the benchmark of what makes great horror or the prosthetic gore fests of the 1980s, these were these were a far cry from what they were used to. So, you know, um, Murray Leader notes that uh, this was a, these films alienated some horror fans and they wanted to, they started drawing really strong uh, demarcation lines. Uh, Fangoria magazine started having a column devoted to, you know, why this isn't a horror movie. Like, this isn't really a horror movie. This is not as, as great, this is not the horror movie that, you know, I grew up with kind of thing. Um, and, and that is why, ultimately, between those two things... I wasn't going to have a horror movie for the 1990s. But every time I talked about this course to friends who were also horror fans, they said, but what about Scream? That was the thing that kept coming up over and over again. What about Scream? So I had to finally concede that maybe... I ought to include it in the course because with it coming up over and over again, and I mean, Stephen West saying, and I mean, it's not surprising that Stephen West would say this because he wrote a book about it. One of the devil's advocates book books on scream scream is undeniably says West undeniably a prominent modern horror text. And it has proved to be a highly influential one in the two decades since its release. It was bizarre to me. I went to review this on Amazon um, where I purchased it. I had got the Kindle version and um, the only other review that was up there said that this guy just lambasted this film. Like, he just he, he, he dismisses it or he puts it down. And I'm looking at what he says right here, and I'm like, mm, yeah, that's a heck of a put-down. Uh, you know, uh, he loves the movie. And by the way, Stephen West's Scream is the best Devil's Advocates book I've read. And... Almost, I, I want to say it's it's one of the best books that I've read in preparation for this course. Uh, the only one that that for me is on par with this is um, Ann Bilson's uh, BFI Classics on the Thing. It's just a, it's a fabulous fabulous little book. If you love Scream, pick up Stephen West's Devil's Advocates book on it. It is just it's illuminating, and you're gonna go, oh, you cribbed a lot of your notes from that guy, and I'll say, yeah, I absolutely did. So I'm just gonna come right out and say that, and I have to say that. Not only because, you know, you always want to cite your sources, but because I have to readily admit that, you know, I wasn't going to put a 90s movie in, so I obviously wasn't thinking that highly of Scream before the course. Uh, it was a movie that I, I watched many years ago. I, I couldn't tell you when. It was in the early 2000s. I didn't see it when it came out. Um, but uh, but at the time, I just didn't think that much of it. But that was also because I wasn't watching movies with the same eye that I do now uh, as an academic. So it gave me a greater appreciation for this film. And West's book certainly gives me a really, really great appreciation for this film, which was written by a guy named Kevin Williamson, who is perhaps, I don't want to say better known, but as well known for later in the decade bringing uh, Dawson's Creek to television. So this was a guy who was doing, you know, uh, teen dramas, right? And um, the, the Scream stars Nave Campbell um, of Party of Five, another sort of, you know, somewhat teen drama, right? Um, and then we, we've also got Courtney Cox from Friends. And so we've got this sense of teen drama 
crossed with Halloween, the movie that the film praises above all other horror films, even though it, it, it at certain points um, makes these slightly reductive jokes about horror, um, the film has an unabashed love for Halloween. And that's because Kevin Williamson had an unabashed love for Halloween and hosted parties when he was when he was younger where you know people come over and they'd watch Halloween and you know you could recite the lines as you went through sort of thing so this was a guy who he in, in that way um mirrors Randy right uh this character who knows all the stuff about horror and can recite it to everybody else in the narrative we can see that sort of construction of the teen film in the UK poster for the movie uh, which had a different tagline than the North American release. The North American release would focus on the idea that somebody has seen too many movies and now they're they're trying to take it for real and give you a sort of sense of where the plot was going to go. But uh, with the poster that was released in the UK, there was a sort of even status of all of the characters, including, and honestly, if you haven't seen the movie, it's time to just press pause and go away. It's, this is me again, just like when I was doing the thing. It's now you leave, you go. If you haven't seen Scream yet, be gone. And uh, come back when you've seen it. Because I'm about to just spoiler away. And people will be like, oh, the spoiler rule is only for... Yeah, but you know what? We just... Why would we ruin cool surprises for people who don't know? I mean, I don't know how prevalent this one is. Is this is this a Darth Vader is Luke's father kind of moment? Or I don't know, because I, you know... When I saw it in the 2000s, I didn't know. Um, and so I think that there's, a, there's that fun surprise regarding who the killer is. Killers, right? Although we only have one pictured in the UK poster, but he's dead center. He's dead center. And I think that's, that's really interesting. And I mean, Drew Barrymore gets as much space on a number of the posters, a number of the, the, the paratexts for the movie, uh, to give you the impression that... Uh, that, that you know, the film might have been trying to pull a psycho thing, sort of a Janet Leigh Janet Lee kind of thing, where, you know, Drew Barrymore was this darling of, um, at least of the 80s. I mean, she'd have been this child actor that a lot of people loved, and she'd kind of done some edgy films in the 1990s, and she had been, uh, you know, the, the subject of some controversy. Um, but she was, you know, she was reinventing herself at this point, and certainly not an actor who you'd think, oh, she'll die in the first 13 minutes. But she does, right? It's a really, really crazy move on the part of the film. Okay, so that's Kevin Williamson. And I tell you about Kevin Williamson first because it's his movie. You know, they're going to use Wes Craven's name to sell this thing more than anything else, but I, I don't actually think that, you know, to some degree, I, I'm on board with, um, with, uh, with a number of critics who have said you could have had anyone make this movie. And it would have been, you know, Steven says this flat out. He just says, um, this, this movie could have been made by any of, uh, this group of people that Peter Hutchin, P Peter Hutchings called these customized movie brats who came around in, you know, Romero being the first in the late sixties and Craven coming up hot on his heels with the last house on the left, uh, a movie that is Really, I find it one, to be one of the most disturbing films of that period. Uh, the paratext uh, on the poster, to avoid fainting, keep repeating, it's only a movie, only a movie, only a movie. And, you know, even with 
years and years and years of distance from that film, watching it, it is, to me, more disturbing than watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the poster here, you know, with one of the killers holding this girl up and she's already in a state of undress. We can tell that she's been stabbed. Mary, 17, is dying. Even for her, the worst is yet to come. And that is not an understatement. Last House on the Left did not undersell its atrocity. And that was the that was something Wes Craven was responsible for. It's what made him a name in horror. It's absolutely what made him a name in horror. Um, but in the 1980s, he moved on to be the name that was, you know, this this practice of throwing somebody's name over top of the titles. Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. John Carpenter's The Thing. And Carpenter, another one of these, uh, you know, Hutchings term movie brats. Um, people who were unlike the filmmakers of the previous era, who really didn't want to be known for just doing horror. Um, even Terrence Fisher, with him doing as many of the Hammer horror movies as he did, was only billed on the posters near the end of the Hammer run, uh, the Hammer horror run. And so you've got Romero, you've got Hooper, uh, you've got Cronenberg, who we didn't, you know, have in the course, but we didn't have room with Carpenter's uh, The Thing, uh, and then Wes Craven. And Wes Craven's name had become synonymous in the 80s with A Nightmare on Elm Street. I think largely, I, I certainly didn't know about The Last House on the Left. It wasn't a movie that anybody was going, ooh, we really need to watch this one, potentially because it's just that disturbing. Uh, it's not the one you watch for like, ooh, that was that was fun, wasn't it? Whereas, whereas Nightmare on Elm Street absolutely was fun. Uh, it was a fun teen horror. I remember seeing it at people's houses like multiple times. You go to somebody's house and say, we're going to watch a movie. What movie are we going to watch? Ooh, let's watch something scary. What are we going to, what, what scary movie are we going to watch? Right. To use a term from Scream. Oh, well, let's watch Nightmare on Elm Street. And I saw it enough times that I, I think, I think I saw it in pieces every time I saw it because you, you know, you'd talk during, you'd go out of the room and hang out with people and uh, kind of like the party in the movie. Um, but in the eighties instead of in the 90s. Now I've got that song, Ladies in the 90s, stuck in my head. Just out of the blue. Now you all do too, if you know it. Uh, what a day. What a day. All right, so um, Wes Craven had fallen out of the limelight by this point. Like, Freddy Krueger, the, the slasher monster. I mean, really, Freddy Krueger is, is another slasher monster in the tradition of the slasher from Halloween, the slasher from Friday the 13th, the slasher from, you know, any number of slasher movies in, in the 1980s. Although those were the two big ones. The Halloween franchise and the Friday the 13th franchise. Those were the big ones. And then everybody else was just scrambling to be part of that. But then along came Wes Craven and he reinvented that to some degree by making the slasher a supernatural uh, creature. So we had supernatural horror crossed with this, the, with the slasher genre. And, but it had gotten to the point where Freddy Krueger was just this monster. It was it becomes something like the Frankenstein monster did um, in the 20th century, where he had ended up you now on lunchboxes and and kids were dressing up as him at Halloween. And once you've crossed those lines, the monster isn't really all that scary anymore. Uh, and so there was an attempt with New Nightmare to to kind of jump back to that. And the movie was as much a piece of metafiction as Scream would be. Uh, metafiction, where the, 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 the text is aware, the fiction is aware, it's a fiction in some way. And what we get with uh, New Nightmare is that the actors who played the original characters 
are now experiencing, you know, what their characters experience. So you get this 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 meta moment. But Craven would say that he 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 felt like the mistake he made with New Nightmares that he made a movie about movie makers, and Kevin Williamson understood that he needed to make a movie about moviegoers to really target the audience that was most likely to want to show up to these sorts of films. Wes Craven, of course, uh, you know, brings Freddy Krueger into uh, Scream just ever so briefly in a moment where he appears as Fred, uh, the janitor, in the, the iconic sweater and hat in a scene in the hall, hallways at the high school in Scream. The opening sequence of the film is classic slasher. The opening sequence of Scream harkens back to an urban legend, uh, which uh, is called something like The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. The Babysitter and the Man in the House. and Or The Babysitter Alone, or something like that, right? And it, it was the subject of a 1970s film made by Fred Walton called When a Stranger Calls. A uh, fairly successful uh, film, not by any stretch of the means uh, Halloween successful, but not a bomb either. Um, but this takes us all the way back to the beginning of where these customized movie brats were were about to become filmmakers uh, at USC Film School, which is where John Carpenter went to learn film. Unlike a number of the movie brats, Carpenter actually went to a, a, a school to learn how to make a movie, which really wasn't the way that, you know, the indie people did it, but Carpenter did. And while he was there, he saw a, um, a film, a 15-minute uh, short film made by a guy named Terry, Winks, Terry Winkless um, called Foster's Release. And it was a short version of The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. And in later on, Winkles would say, John took it from me, no question. Um, but he didn't feel any, any anger towards this. And I think it's a very bizarre thing to say, because how can you take an urban legend away from somebody else? You can go, oh, that was a really good idea to make a film about that. But you can't really say, well, John stole my idea. Uh, because, you know, when Carpenter goes to make Halloween, he's really just doing his own take on The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs. And as it turns out... Um, Carpenter apparently sent uh, notes to Winkless because they were supposed to do this in a sort of peer review way to say, hey, here's how you could have improved this. And Carpenter's feedback was mostly, why did you keep using this shot? How about this shot? The, you know, this, this sort of thing. Uh, Carpenter being the sort of filmmaker who is very, very much about good cinematography. And this is why I think ultimately um, we can come to the conclusion that it, it really wasn't about who directed Scream. So, you know, there's a lot of statements about, like, Wes Craven's Scream. I think that was largely a marketing strategy because there was a bidding war for Williamson's script, which was originally called Scary Movie. And that would go on to be the, the title of the parody uh, franchise um, based on these sorts of films and other horror movies. Um, but Williamson's script is really the key to the film, as we'll talk about in just a little bit. But uh, um, I think, you know, the slick camera work of Scream, which is definitely one of its strengths, could have been done by Carpenter, could have been done potentially by Hooper. Toby Hooper had, had, had done an amazing job with a TV version of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Um, and, you know, the, the, they were all good filmmakers in various ways. Uh, I don't think Cronenberg could have done this film because Cronenberg wouldn't have done Scream the way that the script uh, rendered it. But Wes Craven needed a success. And he was a name. 
He was a name you could attach to a horror movie and have people go, oh, Wes Craven. I mean, I remember seeing, whenever I'd see Wes Craven's name, it was just this this sense, you know, of of that movie is is in the tradition of horror films somehow. If you had one of those names, Toby Hooper's name was on it. Not really even knowing at the time who these people were. Like, I can tell you right now that in the 90s, I did not have a strong sense of who made the horror movies. I just went to see them, or I rented them on, on videotape. And this movie is definitely for my generation and the generation just adjacent to me. So in the 1990s, I was working with teens in my, in my professional life. And I was in I was in my early twenties when Scream came out. Um, or I was in my mid twenties. I was twenty five, and so I'm working with the demographic that this film represents, right on on screen. But it was for those people who had grown up with the access to films that the prior generation hadn't had. Like you could go to a matinee before the advent of video, but you couldn't do what we did, which was pause rewind if you had a beta machine like my family did we could do like very slow-mo shop as as close as you could get to shot by shot looking at a videotape um analysis of certain scenes being like what's going on there what are they doing there um you know what was what was that flash in the background let's go see if we can check that out and so you know we we didn't just watch movies if we loved movies we rewatched them and we potentially scrutinized them and so this movie is for a generation of people who not only watched TV, but our lifestyles were saturated by it by this point. Um, we were the MTV generation in Canada, the Much Music generation, um, more channels than we'd ever seen before, access to video at, at your corner convenience store. It seemed <laughs> at the time like we were media saturated. Now, by way of comparison, I think to today's uh, young people were, we were, we were just, we were just hoping. Um, but that's the sort of person that is represented in the opening sequence by Drew Barrymore's character of Casey Becker, uh, the, the young woman at home. She's not a babysitter. She's, she's home alone. And so she, you know, she, the, the classic thing picks up the phone and this was part of the urban legend, picks up the phone, talks to the man, finds out that the man is in the house, though in this case, not in the house, at least not yet. But the initial conversation that they have is metafictional. And it's, it was neat to me to, to be looking at screen captures from the film, from Casey's first shot, which is a very standard uh, medium close-up to a slightly tilted, slightly canted angle in the very next shot that gives us a view of the backyard, a little bit of a view of the backyard. And the, and the camera keeps doing this. This movie is shot in anamorphic widescreen, the same aspect ratio that John Carpenter shot the thing in, and it gives the opportunity to have space in the background for you to go, is the killer going to jump out back there? Which, by the way, is something that we're going to see all over again, done in spades, at an entirely new level when we get to talking about It Follows in a few weeks. But uh, we, we get the TV in the background with its blue screen. We get the, the porch. And so we've got a number of elements that are going to be uh, crucial to the rest of the film. We're seeing, to some degree, almost an overture, the way that this film is going to be comprised. So the camera work here, making sure that we're we're not sure where, where our eyes should be. Like, sure, we want to... We 
stay focused on Casey Becker, but we already know what she looks like. We know who she is. And so now we're looking around for the killer. Just like Casey, we're doing what she's doing as she's on the phone with somebody who wants to, you know, he's creepy from the get-go, um, but wants to talk about horror movies. And she's popping popcorn in one of the first of many homages to Halloween that this movie contains. And I am not going to... Um, isolate every one of these and go, there it is, there it is, because that's not really going to get us a broad scope idea of what Scream is doing and how it fits into the larger scope of horror and affirms everybody else's, you know, pressuring me to put it into the course, uh, which turned out to be a good decision. Um, you take these risks and you're not sure how it's going to work out, but this was a good one. Uh, we get really, really great little setups of mise-en-scene where Casey is like, playing with one of the knives in the knife holder on the kitchen island, uh, setting up like we know as the audience, this is Chekhov's gun, although now it's Chekhov's knife. If you have a, if, if the, if in a horror movie, somebody's going to be playing with a knife, they're either going to get stabbed by that thing or they're going to try to stab somebody else with it. But once Casey realizes that things are serious, you know, things break down very, very quickly. And we get this shot of her right beside that television. So she's been moving through the house and we get a, a really good sense of where everything is in the house so that when the chase occurs, we know where the entrances are, where the exits are. We also know when she's nowhere near them. She begins to cry. And I, for my money, Drew Barrymore, when she cries, always makes me cry. When Drew Barrymore comes apart, I'm with her. Uh, and I think that's, that goes all the way back to seeing E.T. When Drew Barrymore cried, uh, when E.T. dies, I, I, I'm just a mess. And so Drew Barrymore, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want her crying. I don't want her threatened. She's, she's a great choice in terms of casting. Um, because as I said, she was a bit of a darling in the nineties and she, she does a really good job of playing this scene out. Um, and so, you know, we know the threat is there. But this has been done in this sort of amazing self-aware fashion where the film is integrating um, these audience preconceptions about what a slasher movie ought to do along with their knowledge, right, of what needs to happen or should happen. And yet, with all of that actively being spoken about, the opening 13 minutes of Scream is still a genuinely intense suspense scenario and it was the one thing that i remembered with utter clarity from my my viewing some 20 years ago that the opening sequence is the most i think horrific in the film if this film is to be classified as horror we would classify it as horror largely for its first 13 minutes where we are working with um, these, you know, these, 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 these emotions, um, these, these states of fear, of dread, of suggesting, hor suggested horror, like when her boyfriend gets gutted out on the porch, we initially only hear it happening and the actor kind of moving like, uh, somebody's taking his insides out because they are. Um, and then we get this direct horror of seeing that violence. We get, um, you know, the terror of the chase, terror, the emotion that is produced when we can, we've emoted, we've connected with a character, they're running away from the monster or the villain, and the villain is hot on their heels, and we can see that he's going to catch her. 
And in as much as the ghost-faced mask is to some degree ludicrous at this point, I think it's it's not very difficult. I didn't find it difficult anyway to become the sympathetic viewer at this point and to remember, you know, it's it's Drew Barrymore's performance in this whole sequence that really sells a number of moments. Like the camera work is part of it. The editing's another part, but Drew Barrymore's performance sells this sequence because she does her sense of terror and weakness of vic- uh, being the vulnerable victim so very, very well. Uh, and if we're buying into what's actually happening here, even though we might be aware that the rest of the movie is going to involve uh, a mix of dark comedy with intense shocks, this sequence is not played for laughs. And it, it is, I think, one of the, the best sequences of the film. It really, really sets it up to, to make the rest of the film work. Because if, if this is going to happen to our heroine, we, we want her to be able to get away. We're, we'll be on board with whatever that takes. I think that the, the shot of um, Casey, you know, with her hand over her throat coming up as her parents enter the house is heartbreaking and it's awful and it's just, no, it's so, so awful. As a parent, it's just, it's, it's, it's terrible, which is funny because, I mean, this was not targeted at um, parents. I mean, this was not, they, they weren't like, we hope a lot of boomers show up to this because that would have been the, the parent generation when the movie was released. Uh, it is clearly a movie for Gen X, for uh, Gen Y, for millennials. Um, but watching it now as a parent, I'm like, this is just so bloody awful. She can't, she can't say anything because she's just been strangled. And so she, she tries to get out, you know, mom, and she can't really. It's this harsh whisper. So her parents are this close to being able to rescue her, which in many ways is a callback to Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, but I, I'm i not on board with going like, well, that's Wes Craven's, uh, that's his workmanship in this particular film. That's his influence on the slasher genre, if it's anything. That's Williamson having seen those films and then synthesizing them into this wonderful dark comic pastiche of horror uh, slasher tropes, you know, but the mother just about, just about sees, and then she gets on the phone and the phone is still on outside. And this movie really plays with the technology of, of, of telephones in the nineties, these great big giant cellular phones, but also the phone that didn't have, you know, any wire to you, wireless phone. You just walk around with the phone wherever you want, battery pack phone, see ya, bye, go, go outside, talk, talk to your friend on the deck, uh, run from a, you know, crazed maniac with your phone in your hand. And so her mother hears her basically being eviscerated. And again, this is just such intense horror and we get the scream that the film, uh, you know, is, is titled for the eponymous screen of the movie from the mother as she looks to see her daughter hung in a tree with her guts hanging out. And then the film cuts to our heroine. And that's the first 13 minutes of the movie. And I, and I, and I walk through that uh, slower because I mean, I I always think that the way that a film starts sets its tone or doesn't, it either sets it up or it doesn't. And if, if we, you know, if we're watching a movie and it doesn't start the way we thought it was, then it's time for us to recalibrate. It's probably time for us to recalibrate. If we walk in and the first 13 minutes aren't what we thought it was going to be, it's time for us to shift our, our expectations because the movie is going, this is what the rest of the film is going to be about. So, you know, you watch, you watch something like Gran Torino and you get to the end and you go, oh, I can't believe he died. 
the film started with a funeral. What did you think was going to happen? You know, it, movies tell us where they're going in their first 13 minutes, if they're well done, if they're well done. And Scream certainly is. So cut to our heroine played by Nave Campbell, who was a TV star, Party 5. So she's a known commodity. And there were a number of known names in this film, but they were known from television, right? Courtney Cox from Friends, Nave Campbell from Party of Five. Uh, and this is, th that was an interesting move at the time. Like for the 90s to be taking this shift away from what had previously been the situation, which was that if you were big in television, you probably weren't going to make the leap to film. And if you were washed up in film, you went to do television. And so there was, there was a sort of reversal going on here that I think had a lot to do with, once again, an awareness on the part of the filmmakers, the production company, Dimension Films, um, wanting to aim this movie at a teen audience with a huge disposable income. I mean, they, they calculated that teens had about 120 billion a year. They, they were generating 120 billion a year in the United States. So there's a lot of money being spent by these, by, by that age demographic. I worked at a jean store below the belt, uh, in, uh, in West Edmonton mall here in Edmonton in the nineties. And I remember, you know, a number of meetings with the owner of the company talking talking to the management and staff about the disposable income that teens had. Um, and, you know, movie makers wanted to, to tap into that. And so how do you do that? Well, you take the thing they can watch without anybody's approval, television, and you pull that over into the film realm. That just seems like a, you know, a smart strategy. We get also get in this scene that introduces uh, Neve Campbell's character of Sydney to us. Um, the first of many false jump scares. Although as it turns out, they're, they, they're legit. It's really the monster, her boyfriend, right? Played by young Johnny Depp lookalike, uh, Skeet Ulrich. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's who it is. I'm having one of those moments where I'm like, I'm old, I don't care. Um, but I think that's his name. And, uh, um, I don't need to know who he is because he, he didn't go on to anything as substance. Um, this is just me acknowledging my ignorance today. But, uh, you know, first of many false, seemingly false scares where her boyfriend jumps out and scares her. There's a number of these in the film. Um, and he comes in through the window a number of times too, right? Like we've just had the killer and then he comes in through the window and he's going to be put up as this false red herring. But we also learn that uh, Sydney is virgin. And this is one of the, even though the entire opening sequence plays with concepts that had long been um, associated with the slasher, uh, we're now getting the movie playing with the concept of the final girl. And um, this had been around in, in academic circles, but it, it was also making its way sort of into the popular consciousness, although I don't know whether or not the term was out there yet. The idea certainly was. The idea certainly was. Um, that the female who would survive, because the film actually makes commentary on this, the, the female who survives is, um, is, is a virgin, right? The, the film actually uses the term scream queen. Uh, we hadn't gotten to, to, to final girl yet. Um, but, uh, at least not in, in the, in the way that, that we, we have now. Um, that's sort of a post Buffy thing as we'll talk about in a little bit, but we find out that she's a virgin and that, signals to the audience, oh, well, she's going to make it. Um, even though that wasn't nearly as prevalent as you would have thought. There, there were certainly virginal 
survivors, virginal final girls, like um, the character that, um, you know, makes it to the end of Halloween, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, is a virgin. But Jamie Lee Curtis said the reason she survives in the end is not because she's a virgin, it's because she's smart. And so there was this, there was this pushback against the idea that it was always the virginal one. And we also have these ideas that, that like, you know, once you have sex in a, in a horror movie, then you're, you're, you're toast. And that, that was, that was a standard trope. And yes, there are certainly incidents where that happens. Um, cave, you know, Kevin Bacon's death in, in Friday the 13th is, is an example, but was it the thing that always happened? No, the people had sex in slasher movies and didn't die. Right. Sometimes it was just let's put some, let's put in a sex scene for titillation because that's what they did in the 80s. Um, but we we cut to the, the school and the again, the 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 media savvy nature of the, the teen audience being mirrored by the media savvy nature of these characters who, you know, um, uh, we get uh, Rose McGowan's character Tatum making, you know, these comments on the, the, the nature of how dead they were and putting it in a sort of filmic uh, context. They don't seem particularly broken up about it either. Nobody really does. Nobody seems particularly sad about Casey and her boyfriend's murder. Um, they, they are fascinated by it, but they're not particularly sad. I couldn't help but think of the opening um, episode of, of Twin Peaks where Laura Palmer's death is announced and students are overwrought. They're weeping. There's a girl running through the halls, like loud, ugly crying. Uh, and they keep cutting, you know, to to look over at empties, the, Laura's empty desk. And there's this one character, Audrey Horn, played by Sherilyn Finn, who fakes being sad, but isn't really. And Scream is filled with with that character. Scream is filled with characters who are looking over at the empty desk, but they're not really sad about Casey's demise. Even Sydney. Sydney seems like she's upset, but is Sydney really upset about that? Or she's upset about something else. She's upset about something else. She's upset about how this reminds her of the media circus that surrounded her mother's death uh, nearly a year, almost to a day uh, earlier. I couldn't help but laugh um, moving, like, you know, just watching the movie, I didn't pick up on this, but when I was looking at uh, screen captures for my slideshow, I noticed that our our cast is clustered around a fountain uh, when they're talking about the death of Casey and her her boyfriend. So um, all the the core characters are uh, sitting at at a fountain, and it's to me that is a clear send up of uh, Friends, the opening sequence for Friends. You know, like sure, there's fountains outside of schools, but you could you could have put this shot anywhere. We can never forget the moments of contrivance. So again, this movie trying to reference um, where teens were at and what they wanted and what they wanted to consume to the point where Scream was screened with other possible endings and. Uh, the character of Dewey, the cop, lives because the audience wanted him to. This isn't quite the beginning of this. I mean, film has always been about trying to satisfy the audience. But we're really seeing a ramping up to the sort of tell me what you want, what you really, really want that we get with uh, the writing of Twilight, where Stephanie Meyer was asking fans what they wanted more of and then pretty much giving them whatever it was that they wanted. And... Uh, the full commodification 
of film being revealed to us. I, don't, I wouldn't want to say like, oh, and this is where it starts and it's the downfall of film because film has always wanted to make money. Film always wanted to give people what they wanted. You know, we had, you, you get Mavericks every now and again, like James Whale, but even there, James Whale was savvy enough to go, okay, with Bride of Frankenstein, I know what the audience wants. They want the monster to do this. They want, you know, a mad scientist. I'll give them those things, but then I'm going to go and I'm going to put a bunch of other crazy stuff in it. And John Carpenter stays true to his vision. He doesn't give the audience exactly what it apparently wanted. He just didn't know what it wanted in 1982. And his career kind of goes on the rocks. Scream gives the audience what they want. Scream knows what audience it's targeted and it gives them what they want. And, and I love how this sequence sets up the three males. Any one of them could be the killer. The movie does a lot of like false, like, who is it? Is it the principal? Um, which is, again, it's a, that's, a, that's a feature of the genre. You know, that we probably have seen the killer and we just need to figure out who they are. Television plays a large role throughout the movie, not only in the references to um, watching horror movies on, on videotape, but in the appearance of uh, Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers. Um, like, is she related to, to Dorothy? You know, she's obviously not related to Dorothy Gale, but there's, you know, this sort of, she, she says at one point, I ought, I ought to have been the meteorologist. I should have been the weather woman. Um, but you know, Gale Weathers, this TV personality who wants to win a Pulitzer, she's like Lois Lane in Scream and, uh, revealing to us the truth about Sydney's mother. So television plays the same role that it did in Night of the Living Dead. So, you know, that this again is one of these things where people are like, oh, and this is where it all began. And I'm like, no, if we go further back, we can see that, you know, television was already seen to be playing this role, that it was that that I think that Romero's use of television says that the people at the time thought they were media saturated. And now we jump to the 90s and we see people going, oh, we're still media saturated. And why do I bring this up? Because you could take a movie like Scream and you could say, this movie is about the media saturation of youth in the 1990s. And it's also about how they, they would blur the lines of fantasy and reality. And that's how these two young people end up, you know, blah, 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 becoming, uh, becoming crazed killers. And it would ignore the fact that this movie isn't about subtext. Like if we, if we go digging for subtext, if we play the Where's Waldo game with Scream, we will really miss the point with this film because it's not about that kind of subtext, I don't think. I mean, sure, you could take that and you could run with it, but to me, the more interesting thing is Sydney because when the killer phones Sydney, we go, oh, here we go again. It's Casey all over, but it's not because Sydney isn't Casey. Casey is the vulnerable victim. Sydney is closer to Clarice Starling. Although, I mean, she, she is, she's not a federal agent, you know, she, she's, she's not working, you know, she, she doesn't have those capabilities necessarily. At least we don't, we don't know at the point that she says, I call your bluff to the guy on the phone and walks out of the house. That moment that she does what everyone in a horror movie needs to do, do something stupid, even though she's fully aware of what happens in a horror movie. You know, as Roger Ebert said, this movie is about characters who go to the movies which was something that you didn't do in movies. You don't reveal, you know, you don't say, oh, we're in a fiction. I have a friend who wrote a time travel novel and uh, her publisher said, you got to remove the references to Back to the Future because it's, it, no. Like, like we don't live in a world where we know what would happen in a zombie apocalypse where, you know, we know how to fight Dracula and we know how to fight the Wolfman and all of those sorts of things, right? Silver bullets and stakes. Um, Sydney steps out onto the porch and Nave Campbell's face 
You know, watch the performances. It's got this sense of ferocity, resolution on it most of the time. Like, yeah, she gets scared. Yes, she's fearful once once she realizes just how crazy this is. But she's also capable. And as it turns out, our monster is not the uber slasher of Thomas Sipos's, uh conceptualization of what a monster really needs to be. He's a bit of a bumbler. You know, he's, he, 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 he falls over when later on when Tatum throws beer bottles at him, like she hits him in the nuts. So really how, how capable is the monster in this particular case? Sydney seems to be the capable one. She can keep him at bay with nothing more than opening her closet door and making sure that it jams up against her bedroom door. And that defeats the monster for a little while until her boyfriend shows up again, right? That, that, and, and this time, this time. Sydney does what we as the audience might even be saying, hey, hey, what's going on there? And then Sydney goes, yeah, okay, I'm phoning the cops. And she does. Well, the cops are already, like, she called them electronically, right? She called them on her computer, which was, again, one of those ways in which this movie is playing with the technology of its time and re- archiving where we were with the technology of the time. But then we get, uh, we get her boyfriend at the police station looking all hurt. And now we begin to wonder, well, well, it can't be him because if... If, if they've identified him, we know how the rules of these things work. It can't be the obvious guy. Like the obvious guy at some point was the, the principal. And then he gets knifed, right? The obvious guy. We're like, oh, maybe it's the principal. But it can't be the principal because he's too obvious. And then he gets stabbed right away. As soon as we're coming to that conclusion, he gets stabbed. Boyfriend doesn't get killed at this point, but he does get put in jail. So how can he be the killer? Coming back to Thomas Sipos for just a moment. Sipos doesn't like Scream. That's clear. Uh, he makes a number of, you know, when you want to find somebody who's talking down about Scream, you would want to look at Thomas Sipos, who, you know, says that even the mask, even the mask of Ghostface is silly. You know, it's not as serious uh, as uh, as the one that was, you know, created for Michael Myers um, or, you know, Jason's uh, hockey mask. And my pushback on that, because Sipos says the face of Ghostface was designed for marketing. And in as much as that may be true, even within the metafictional nature of this movie, the very, in the diegesis, in the fictional world, it's a Halloween costume. That's what they find out. That's what Dewey finds out. And by the way, again, with our bumbling cops, we've got another common element, common motif from Wes Craven movies. But Wes Craven didn't write this script. Wes Craven just got it on film. Williamson wrote these bumbling cops. But as these bumbling cops, Dewey comes along with the father death costume. And he says, these things are all over the place. And right away, we're getting, you know, not only the, the metafictional nature of you can wear a Jason mask or a Michael Myers mask. Um, you can you can dress up as Freddy Krueger at Halloween. Now you'll be able to dress up as Ghostface as well. But that also works within this self-aware diegesis, a self-aware universe where, as Roger Ebert said, this is about characters who go to movies and they live in a world where horror movies are a reality and you don't pretend like there's never been a slasher film ever before. You you work within this, this self-aware thing. It sets up sequels, absolutely sets up marketing, but it also works just within the con- context of the film we're currently watching. And it tells us something about, you know, who the villains are going to be, that they are probably one of these very aware young men who know so much about film. And we begin to suspect Randy, because he sure knows a lot, and he's got a thing for Sydney, and, you know, that hasn't been returned, so maybe he's angry about that. So we begin to point the finger. 
we begin to say, I think I know, I think I know who it is. And, you know, now knowing that you can get this costume anywhere, we have an even better sense of, you know, how that, that might be, might be handled. And the character of the, the aware fan is not like Scream didn't do it first, but Scream does make its entire film work around that concept. Even that though is not a first. When Randy gets up to give the rules, you know, he's got his hand up in the air and it's mirroring the killer's hand on the TV, Michael Myers' hand with a knife in it on the TV. Well, we can see that this movie is 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 making that jump back and forth, this meta conversation, this self-aware conversation with its tradition. But other movies have done this. Um, the Toby Hooper's Salem's Lot featured, uh, you know, this young man character from Stephen King's novel who was like one of the original monster kids. This is somebody who would have, you know, read Monsters of Filmland, this magazine that was like later on Starlog and Fangoria. It was a magazine made for fans of a particular genre. He's got the classic Karloff Frankenstein poster on his wall. He's got horror masks. He's got things you could order from those types of magazines. They would always have... I always wanted to buy this stuff. They would have model kits and they would have masks. And I, I just, I didn't have enough money. Never mind that. I think I probably as a kid, I was, I was like, that'll scare the hell out of me. I'll have it in my room and then I'll want to throw it away and I won't have that money anymore. Um, but uh, we also had Fright Night, um, vampire movie with a kid who watches a lot of late night TV. And there's a, his, the Van Helsing of uh, Fright Night is the late night, TV host, a sort of send up of Peter Cushing and Vincent Price, who works with this kid who knows all about vampires from movies, who has had a vampire move in next to his house. So we've had these sorts of characters before. And that's not to say like, well, Scream just isn't as good as other things. And this wasn't as original. No, no, no. There are lots of ways in which it absolutely is. Um, but it's, it's, it's just to say that this is, this is, you know, it's taking something that we've seen before, but it's, it's compiling it, hybridizing it in new ways. Because unlike Fright Night, which had teenage characters, that wasn't ultimately fully the kind of teen drama that we have with a movie like Scream and the copycats that would follow it. Um, but more of the sort of meta meta nature of this movie, not only do we have, you know, people watching Halloween on TV, but at one point we've got Sydney and the cameraman uh, that Gail Weathers works with watching a video feed of other people watching Halloween and there's just so many levels and they're, and they're starting to yell at the guy like the audience would be like, look behind you, look behind you. In as much as that character, Randy is going, look behind you to Jamie Lee Curtis on the TV. And it just becomes this whole crazy, you know, all these like boxes within boxes. Even once we get to the point that the killers are revealed, they still have to have conversations about horror. They still want to go on about horror movies, you know, like, once it's revealed and they're stabbing each other, they're still talking about horror movies and why they do what they do. You know, like horror movies don't make killers. They just make them more creative right before they go into this stabbing each other back and forth scene. You know, this brutal and yet somewhat darkly comic 
sequence, uh, which I, I think is largely made comic uh, due to Matthew Lillard's performance, um, where you know he they they keep going through sort of you know the, the we're really serious killers to oh my god my parents are going to be so mad uh, moments uh, absolutely pitiful uh, villains. We don't really get a sense in this sequence that that there is the same threat that we would have gotten from other slasher horror villains. And this takes us back to Tatum's death. Even Tatum's death, unlike Casey's. Casey, you know, Casey does her best, but she's the she's the vulnerable victim. But even Tatum, coded in many ways as the obvious candidate for the person who has to die about halfway through the movie and incidentally, it was the producers no shock to Weinstein's, who said um, somebody needs to die about halfway through this movie, otherwise it's too boring. So what do they do? They take Sydney's friend, she seems like the right candidate, and she dies in the garage. Another place that you get killed in slasher movies frequently. Um, but her scene isn't, she's completely weak, she's completely helpless. She comes off initially as as seductive siren, you know. Oh, are you going to kill me? Because she thinks it's one of the guys. Well, it is. And you know, I want to be in the sequel, a little bit more of that metafiction, but, you know, throwing the beer bottles. It's, it's a smart thing. She does exactly what everybody in the audience says she should do, which in the old days, you didn't, you grabbed the wrong thing. You went to the wrong place, which ultimately she does, but not before, not before she's put up a really good fight. Sadly, I think the way that they take her out just makes her, it takes all of her wittiness all of her really cool media savvy comments. You're starting to sound like some Wes Carpenter movie being one of my favorites. I mean, she obviously, I think she's being coded there as not knowing who Wes Craven and John Carpenter is. But I, I, I always think that's just such a such a great moment. But then she dies by trying to go through the cat door, which I'm like, I feel like, I, you know, that's, the, that's that moment where I'm arguing with the movie in that way that I hate so much. Where I'm like, oh, I, I really feel like Tatum could have come out of this better. Um, but she has to die. Because we need one final girl, or do we? That's the question, right? Or do we? Um, but again, coming back to Nave Campbell's um, performance, fierce. You know, she hears something in the bathroom. She turns around. She doesn't have that shocked look where her eyebrows are, you know, crawling up towards her hairline. She's she looks fierce. Like what? Who here's who's here? And that might just be because she's pissed off because of what the girls had just been saying in the bathroom. These really awful things that they were saying about her and her mother. But it also could be that Sydney just doesn't scare that easy. And so you look at that sequence and then you compare it with other ones, like the one when she is being threatened by the killers. She doesn't look so much terrified in a lot of those shots as she does like she's thinking it all through. And a little bit shocked, like just looking at these two going, this is pathetic at some degree like reading the facial features this doesn't look like someone who's like oh no i'm going to die you know we do not she's not sitting at the the end of the table from leatherface she's looking at these two idiots who you know they're they're skinny teenage boys for the most part and we finally come back around to stephen west and his uh and his his work on screen where he gives a rundown of what the final girl becomes this is by no means what Carol Clover originally envisioned it as. It is in some respects, but Carol Clover threw in a lot more um, psychoanalytic, Freudian, phallic, you know, every knife's a penis uh, rep, uh, interpretations that don't work for every film, if they even work for any. Because it comes back to that thing of like, she has to be virginal. And, you know, some movies are going to play with that at some point. This movie certainly plays with it because 
Sydney's not virginal anymore. But Stephen West's rundown of The Final Girl is one of the best academic ones that I've seen of it. The concept of The Final Girl is acknowledged by key characters in Scream. The resilient, lone heroine who endures while her friends are massacred and, despite appearing emotionally or physically vulnerable during the final scenes, proves versatile in repeating, repeatedly repelling the brutal advances of the killer before normally ensuring the antagonist's downfall. And you may, just in hearing that, go, well, but wait a second, that's not what happens in Scream. It's not a resilient, lone heroine, as we find out. And you just said she doesn't appear emotionally vulnerable. She might be physically vulnerable, but is she emotionally vulnerable during these scenes? She doesn't seem to be, right? Like she's, she's pretty upset, but she, she rallies. She recovers. Um, and, you know, dispatches one of them by television, which is, you know, great fun. Wonderful. Another wonderful meta moment. Like this is the, the very thing that spawned you. Now it will take you out. You know, I, it brought you into the world. Now it's taking you out. When her boyfriend is assaulting her, trying to strangle her, and she jams her finger into his chest. I mean, oh my God, what would Carol Clover do with that little bit of penetration? Um, but, uh, you know, she's, she's, she's not flailing about in some sort of hysterical feminine way, but rather... She's, she's moving, we're moving into that section of girl power. We're moving into the, the advent of the capital F final, capital G girl, um, that, uh, scream, scream will usher in and many others will follow behind and will imitate and then expand upon. But she's not alone. Courtney Cox comes in and now she knows to take the safety off the gun because she did this initially and we're all like, woo! And this is interesting too because, you know, they're not friends. Sydney and Gail are not friends. They're, they're adversaries, right? Sydney clocks Gail near the beginning of the film. When Courtney Cox comes in at the end of the movie with the gun and shoots the boyfriend, we, we don't have the lone final girl anymore. We have two women working together and there were a number of critics who have, who have who've taken a look at this and said, this is really significant because normally, you know, these, these types of women are not supposed, like once we, once we have a fight between them, once we have that cat fight, then they go to war with each other for the entire film. And, you know, you'll, you, they'll have a battle at the end in some way, in, in some sort of mean girls kind of sense. Scream doesn't do that. It gets cooperation from them, even if they will continue to be adversaries in the sequel. But the movie ends up with, Sydney saying, not in my movie, right? Because Randy says, oh, then the killer jumps up and one last thing and she <laughs> shoots her boyfriend in the head. And, and she says, not in my movie. And right there, there's that meta moment where I don't think this film is about like troubled youth becoming killers. This is about giving agency or representing women with agency in a way that cinema was increasingly doing, moving all the way back to Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, Sigourney Weaver in Alien, and increasingly more and more of that. So that now we're, we're post-Terminator 2 with Linda Hamilton being completely jacked. Nave Campbell doesn't have to be this, you know, she doesn't have to become masculinely muscular. She can be capable while being some of the standard things that people expected from the victims in slasher movies. But it's also interesting to consider who survives, right? Because Randy's told us, you may not survive the movie if you have sex. Nave Campbell had sex. You may not survive the movie if you drink or do drugs. Randy did, you know, 
he was high. That's why he was laying on the couch going, look behind you, but didn't look behind him. You may not survive the movie if you say, I'll be right back, hello, or who's there. And we have people returning who said something like that. You know, from Dewey being carted out at the end of the movie, even though he's been stabbed, to the father showing up, even though, you know, we, we were pretty sure he was going to show up with his hands cut off in the last reel. Um, the movie tells us the rules and then breaks all the rules. Not in my movie. So, yeah, Nave Campbell had sex or Sydney had sex. But even the way that the sex is related to us as an audience is not the the sex for titillation of the 80s slasher movie, but rather sex as trope to set up the audience to have an expectation of who will die next. And then to break with that convention, and I say hurrah for all sorts of reasons, but and this this goes into uh, adjacent research that I've been I've been doing on the chainmail bikini sword wielding types like Red Sonia, um, where there's the, the the idea there is that she her powers that she has as a swordswoman can be taken away from her if she has sex with someone who hasn't defeated her in combat. And I remember talking to a comics writer who reversed that, uh, Gail Simone, and she said, um, I just thought it was stupid that Conan could be a really great swordsman and he didn't have to, you know, there was no sort of like, you can't have sex. Um, this virginal concept, this sort of puritanical policing of female sexuality that Scream does away with. And there are people who are like, oh, yeah, you know the rules. Like, if you have sex, you'll die. And it's like, no, that's not actually what this movie does. So it, it reverses these things. It takes it in a new direction and brings us a new type of final girl, one who is Clarice Starling capable, uh, moving from, you know, the, the cast of one of the, I don't want to say knockoffs, because this was another Williamson movie. Kevin Williamson wrote it. And he, this is interesting that, that, the, that the paratext for the posters of I Know What You Did Last Summer from the writer of Scream, no longer Wes Craven's name up there, but we can tell you it was from the writer of Scream. And he's not a name yet, so we're just going to tell you it was the guy who wrote it. And you'll be like, ooh, I liked Scream, so I want to go see I Know What You Did Last Summer. But one of the stars of I Know What You Did Last Summer, Sarah Michelle Gell, who's that girl becomes Buffy the Vampire Slayer on television. So now we see this shifting back and forth between the little screen and the big screen, but Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where it's final girl. Can we even call Buffy the Vampire Slayer final girl? She certainly comes out of that tradition though. Uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar is not a great, big, tall, buff, you know, alien killer. She's just a tiny little cheerleader but she kills vampires. She kicks ass. And it, the, the, this, is, this is shifting the way that we have perceptions of females in horror films. And now at this point, I mean, there's probably a sense in which we started creating not final girls, but, and I don't want to say final boys, but some sort of thing where it's like, no, no, over and over again, we get males being victimized. Like Randy is useless for the film. He's the one who gets rescued. Um, and then it moves on to movies that we call horror films like Resident Evil with Mila Jovovich. And Mila Jovovich is another really amazing moment in film because I remember reading for the longest time lots of female actors saying, once I reach 40, my career is over. Mila Jovovich makes Resident Evil, you know, way back and is still the name over Monster Hunter. And she's in her 40s. So not only is her career still thriving, build, building off of 
the growth of the final girl into what? The adventure heroine? The horror heroine? heroine? I, I, don't, I don't know what we want to say. I mean, I don't think Screen Queens quite gets it because that's something else. But as Andrew Tudor says in his excellent essay, Why Horror? The Peculiar Pleasures of a Popular Genre, genres are not fixed, nor are they only bodies of textual material. So we can't just look at the artifacts and say, I know what it is. They are composed as much of the beliefs, commitments, and social practices of their audiences as by texts. Better understood is a particular subculture of taste than as autonomous assemblies of cultural artifacts. We don't just want to know about the movies. We want to know about the people who watch them. Next week, we move away from the slasher and we get a window into something that did happen in the 1990s, but happened in Japan, J-horror. But we're seeing J-horror recycled, redone, revisited through a remake of one of my favorite um, horror movies, the supernatural horror of Gore Verbinski's The Ring.